Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And in all honesty, this was not the video that I was prepared to make for you all today. In fact, I have another video that has been entirely prepped and I was moments away from taping before I saw this bit of news cross my timeline. And yes, that is the fact that Xbox, Phil Spencer, Microsoft has purchased ZeniMax Media. Now, this has been reported in a couple of places as Bethesda, including by Xbox in their own graphic here. But this includes Bethesda Game Studios and everybody that lives under ZeniMax. That's Arcane, that's id, that's Tango. And that makes this one of the biggest deals of all time in the video game industry. Now, you see on my thumbnail, I entitled this the biggest deal ever. A bit of a confession to make. It is not, in fact, the biggest deal in video games. That actually goes to Tencent buying control of Clash of Clans maker Supercell for $8.6 billion. But in terms of what we talk about regularly in this space, this is the biggest deal ever for console mainline traditional video game experiences, not to disparage mobile at all. Mobile makes a ton of money. A lot of the biggest deals in video games relate to mobile, whether that's Supercell or King. But I think for the folks that watch Virtual Legality that I talk to on a regular basis, this is by far the biggest deal to ever happen in this space. Now, this isn't the first time by a long shot that we have talked about Microsoft acquisitions here in virtual legality. In fact, we only talked about Microsoft potentially buying and making a major splash in video games just a little bit ago where we asked the question whether Microsoft was actually interested in looking to buy Bungie and they denied it and Bungie denied it. And we talked about the fact that Microsoft is constantly on the phone with others considering whether or not it would make sense to acquire them. Microsoft has been on a buying spree for the past few years trying to populate that Game Pass product and it would make perfect sense for them to actually call up Bungie, to call up other folks. We saw Warner Brothers was potentially for sale for $4 billion and it was reported that Microsoft had expressed interest. And I had said in this video that you see on your screen right now, of course they did. Anybody will express interest that is in the acquisition game. It just is a matter of, hey, what's the price for that thing? And Microsoft decided not to purchase WB Games, at least at this time, maybe because $4 billion was too high for that asset, or maybe because they had what they felt to be a higher and better value to be received from that $4 billion as, let's say, half of purchasing ZeniMax. We've talked about this for years now. We were talking with the Easy Allies on their podcast, and you can see in our early days before I knew fully how to make a high-resolution thumbnail in a Help Us Out Hoag segment where we talked about mergers and acquisitions and Microsoft. We talked last year about the fact that they weren't buying Platonic, who makes ukulele and is uh, manned by a lot of the folks that used to work or that had a connection to Rare and Banjo-Kazooie, ukulele, of course, being a bit of a spiritual successor to that product. We've talked about Microsoft a lot. And why have we talked about them? Yes, because they've purchased a lot of games in the recent past, but also because they have always had the money to do it. You see here the market capitalization of Microsoft is $1.49 trillion. Now, that doesn't mean 
that they are specifically worth one and a half trillion dollars, that they can leverage one and a half trillion dollars to throw at anything. What it does mean is that the market values their publicly traded stocks at a collective aggregate $1.5 trillion. And in general, it means that Microsoft can drum up money more easily than someone with a lower market capitalization because they can pay for their deals with paper, with stock. Now, one of the things that jumps out about this deal to me today is that there isn't any paper. And we'll talk about that in a second. By comparison, here, $1.49 trillion at Microsoft, Sony has $97 billion in market capitalization. And billions and trillions, when we get up into all these numbers, it's very difficult for normal people, including me, to fully understand and contemplate. But 97 isn't 97% of a trillion. It's 9.7% of a trillion. And again, Microsoft has 1.5 of those. Sony is tiny compared to Microsoft. And Microsoft's gaming division is relatively tiny compared to their entire enterprise. 1.49 trillion is everything that Microsoft sells. And Microsoft is only in the business of video games as a small portion of their overall market capitalization and market treatment. So Microsoft hasn't fully gone in in the way that their resources would have allowed them to in the past. And so one of the things I have always said in my videos is, you know, take a slow notion to, oh, they're going to buy up Electronic Arts. Oh, they're going to buy up Bungie. Oh, they're going to spend this massive amount of dollars because Microsoft historically has not done that in the gaming space. They have done that in a lot of enterprise software spaces, huge amounts of money, but they haven't done it in gaming before today. Here is the blog post from Phil Spencer, head of Xbox, welcoming the talented teams and beloved game franchises of Bethesda to Xbox. It's interesting how marketing works, right? They bought ZeniMax, but everybody really associates this brand with Bethesda. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so we call it Bethesda for purposes of a public relations statement because that's what's going to generate the most headlines. That's what people are going to understand the best. As Phil Spencer says, today is a special day as we welcome some of the most accomplished studios in the games industry to Xbox. We are thrilled to announce that Microsoft has entered into an agreement to acquire ZeniMax Media, parent company of Bethesda Softworks. Now, you'll see there a bit of language that we have talked about in the past. This is an announcement that we've entered into an agreement to acquire sometime in the future. We will see in the more formal press release that they anticipate that it will get done before the middle of next year. One of the things we've talked about in virtual legality as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer is that the process is long and complicated. When you start talking about billion-dollar deals, it's even longer and more complicated. But suffice it to say, the announcements here are that an agreement in principle has been reached. Presumably, an agreement has been generally signed, but based on conditions that have to happen in the future, including, as we will talk about as part of this video, regulatory approvals, which, for the first time in video games, at least here in the United States, might actually present a question that the Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission is going to have to ask of Microsoft and ZeniMax as to whether or not this kind of transaction will, in fact, lower competition in the video game industry. Now, I fully expect this transaction to go through, but this might be the first one where they really get a much closer look here in the United States. Bethesda is an incredibly talented group of 2,300 people worldwide who make up some of the most accomplished creative studios in our industry. 
across Bethesda Softworks, Bethesda Game Studios, id Software, ZeniMax Online Studios, that's Elder Scrolls Online, Arcane, Machine Games, Tango Gameworks, Alpha Dog, and Roundhouse Studios. Now, I fully admit that I don't know everything that all of those developers have made. I know Arcane. Arcane's one of my favorites. They're currently working on Deathloop, which we will talk about more as part of this video. These are the teams responsible for franchises like The Elder Scrolls, Fallout, Wolfenstein, Doom Dishonored, Prey, Quake, and Starfield, as well as many more. Now, that's a heck of a list, right? And one of the things we will talk about here is what it means for these franchises. Now, generally, when you see an acquisition like this, you would assume that these franchises will now be exclusive to the Microsoft ecosystem, the Xbox. We're going to talk about a lot of language that exists in these various releases and blog posts and language that's coming out of Bethesda that suggests that that might not be the case. And the confounding factor here is Game Pass. What is Microsoft trying to do with Game Pass? How are they going to recoup their investment of billions and billions and billions of dollars? And I think this might be a most unusual acquisition in the video game space because I'm not entirely sold on the fact that Microsoft intends to just forego millions and millions of sales on, most predominantly, the PlayStation 5. Over the years, I've had many deep conversations with the creative leaders at Bethesda on the future of gaming, and we've long shared similar visions for the opportunities for creators and their games to reach more players in more ways. Now, the easiest thing to attach that kind of sentiment to is Game Pass, of course, which is the subscription model that Microsoft and Xbox is trying to sell folks on. But this is the first bit of language that we see that kind of suggests that maybe we won't be going exclusive with this asset. We'll see. Bethesda were early supporters of Xbox Game Pass, and we will be adding Bethesda's iconic franchises to Xbox Game Pass for console and PC. I think the simplest way of reading that is that Bethesda's games are now day and date going to be offered on Game Pass. It isn't exactly what this sentence says. So, you know, pay attention to this as the years go on as to what Microsoft decides to do with this. As you likely know, if you're watching a virtual legality, Xbox and Microsoft has made a commitment to basically put everything that their first party studios make on Game Pass on day one, which is a tremendous value for everything in the Microsoft ecosystem. But they are adding a lot today. And so this sentence could be read as saying, hey, we're going to add the old fallouts. Hey, we're going to add the old dooms. We're going to add the old Wolfensteins, whatever. But there might be some kind of time component to bringing new games over to Game Pass. I don't think that's what it means, but you know, reserve that in the back of your mind. If it does, in fact, mean that everything Bethesda makes is going day and date over to Game Pass, that's just a tremendous value, tremendously popular franchises, and quite the coup for Microsoft. One of the things that has me most excited is seeing the roadmap with Bethesda's future games, some announced and many unannounced, to Xbox console and PC, including Starfield, the highly anticipated new space epic currently in development by Bethesda Game Studios, and has been in development for ages and ages and ages, and rumors have flown about it, and it's been revealed with what amounts to a teaser showing a shot in space. Nobody has seen it, nobody knows what it's like, except, of course, Phil Spencer and Xbox. Bethesda are passionate believers in building a diverse array of creative experiences in exploring new game franchises 
and in telling stories in bold ways. You know, just a little light compliment to their new acquisition. Of course, if you've been following video games for a long time, you know, Bethesda is known for certain things. I wouldn't necessarily characterize all their studios as building a diverse array of creative experiences. I think the Fallout model, the Elder Scrolls model, has been pretty thoroughly established at this point in time. They've released Skyrim on virtually every device that has ever existed in the electronic space. But this will represent a change for their procedures. This does represent new resources and new mechanisms and new voices that are going to be coming down from Microsoft and talking to them as well. Now, will they be talking to them as publishers? That's another open question, which we will see raised in these statements. Either way, Phil Spencer admits, today is a landmark step in our journey together. And I am incredibly energized by what this step means for Xbox. So that's Phil Spencer saying, hey, we just bought Bethesda. Now, you'll note what isn't in there, any deal terms, right? This was all about, hey, look at all the games that are going to be supported on Xbox and trying to set the tone for the public relations. One of the things that I think gamers are sensitive to, and certainly Phil Spencer is sensitive to, and Xbox in general, is that this could look for the world like we are taking Bethesda that had been a multi-platform stalwart has Doom on the Nintendo Switch, has supported Sony and PlayStation throughout their existence, and are taking them in-house, that they're going to become exclusive. And they might well be. So one of the goals of public relations here is to say, well, we want to establish that this is a good thing, and we want to hit that point as hard as possible. Because someone like Hogue and Virtual Legality might look at this and say, well, if you do take it exclusive despite all this language about gamers being able to play in more in different areas and, and better and all accessibility things that you have done, a PlayStation user, someone invested in that ecosystem that doesn't necessarily want an Xbox, could say, hey, I don't get to play the new Wolfenstein, the new Elder Scrolls, I don't get to play Starfield, I don't get to play whatever Arcane's going to come out with after Deathloop, and we'll talk about that. And that would, of course, be a bad thing in terms of the over-universe of gamers, the overall universe of gamers. And that's something that Xbox and Phil Spencer is trying to avoid as a message that is going out with Xbox, right? They are trying to establish themselves as the good guys in the room, the folks that don't want a walled garden, that want more gamers everywhere to have more games. And it'll be interesting to follow this because this could wind up looking for all the world like they just pulled all of these franchises, all of this software away from Sony at the cost of $7.5 billion. Here's the official public relations newswire, right? And this is designed not to go necessarily to gaming outlets. This is from the Microsoft Corporation and is talking to the world. Microsoft regularly does this. They regularly buy things. $7.5 billion is, you know, not that much in the overall scheme of things for a company worth one and a half trillion dollars, and they are used to writing about the various markets in which they are investing, which is one of the reasons you get this opening paragraph. More than three billion people on the planet play games for fun, escape, and human connection. Unlike any other medium, games empower people to engage in creativity, strategic thinking, and teamwork, immersing them into interactive stories and worlds created by some of the world's most amazing creators. The cultural phenomenon of gaming has made it the largest and fastest growing form of entertainment in the world, an industry that is expected to be more than $200 billion in annual revenue in 2021. In other words, hey, shareholders, we know that you might not love this Xbox project, certain of you, 
And yet we want to still continue to establish why it's important for us to be invested in gaming in general. This is going out to the world. This isn't just going to IGN or GameSpot. And so we want to point out, hey, gaming, it's large. Microsoft on Monday announced plans to acquire ZeniMax Media, the parent company of Bethesda Softworks, one of the largest privately held game developers and publishers in the world. Under the terms of the agreement, Microsoft will acquire ZeniMax Media for $7.5 billion in cash. That's right. We talked earlier about how market capitalization can help you buy a company by using your paper, not cost, not liquidity on the first day. And they aren't using it at all. This is something that was likely negotiated by ZeniMax. They said, hey, we want an all-cash transaction. We want that cash. We want to be bought out. We want to get out the door, the owners, and we want that money in hand. Now, in terms of price, $7.5 billion is huge. For reference, you look at something like Insomniac Games that made Spider-Man $229 million. You look at Respawn that's had some success now with both Titanfall and Jedi Fallen Order being purchased by Electronic Arts for $400 million. By comparison, $7.5 billion. And why did it cost so much? Obviously, Bethesda has 2,300 people. That's significantly bigger than both Insomniac and Respawn combined. But also, where do those people work? It's not just one company. This wasn't just one acquisition. With unique investments in content community and the cloud, Microsoft's gaming strategy differs from others by empowering people to play the games they want with the people they want anywhere they want. This is a point hit again and again and again by Phil Spencer here in this official press release, and it is the philosophy of Microsoft. With the addition of Bethesda, Microsoft will grow from 15 to 23 creative studio teams and will be adding Bethesda's iconic franchises to Xbox Game Pass. They had a 50% increase, give or take, pardon my math here. I'm a, I'm a lawyer, not a mathematician, but they had roughly a 50% increase in their creative studios, independent creative studios doing different things and the output that they can achieve in one fell swoop. $7.5 billion bought them eight studios. Obviously, not the same size, not the same value. The Bethesda Softworks is not the same as Tango, is not the same as Arcane. But overall, they got eight new studios in this one transaction, and that's why that price is so high. $7.5 billion for eight studios winds up coming down a little bit to where we would expect. Insomniac is still ridiculously cheap because I don't know why, because Ted Price and Sony were friends and they, Ted just didn't want to be independent anymore. I couldn't tell you why this number is so low, but it is. Uh, EA and Respawn is a little bit more what we would expect. Still might be low based on Respawn's output. Hard to say exactly how that goes. But $7.5 billion to get eight studios is the headline item here today. Now, they also slipped in a little bit of additional news. Games are the primary growth engine in gaming, and games are fueling new cloud gaming services like Xbox Game Pass, which has reached a new milestone of over 15 million subscribers. That's as of September 21st, 2020. The last time we saw this number was 10 million subscribers on April 29th, 2020. Now, 2020 being what it is, this might be an unusual explosion of growth for something like Game Pass, but that's a 50% growth rate in four months. Oh, if only virtual legality could have that growth rate, right? But you look at this kind of thing and you say, okay, Microsoft is invested. Microsoft is all in. If you are a Microsoft fan, 
one of the things that you should love about this is that they aren't just going to go away. Really, since they launched the Xbox, there has always been this kind of whisper campaign of saying, well, is Microsoft really committed to gaming? The Xbox was kind of a lark. They wanted to get a set-top box in the living room, maybe so that they could sell you Windows in some different way. Have they been committed to this? And I think at different points in the lifespan of the Xbox ecosystem, one could argue that they were not, that they were not committed to this project. And that has changed, really changed with Phil Spencer taking over, committing them to acquiring all these various companies. The Game Pass initiative itself demands content. So them moving up to 23 creative studio teams, one wonders exactly what that number is ideally in their back offices, what number they are looking to achieve in terms of studios, 25, 30, that are constantly putting out game output to get on Game Pass, to sell that Game Pass at $15 a month. Maybe that goes up to $20 a month. If the product is good enough, it'll support the price of the content within it. So Microsoft is continuing to try to push that, continuing to try to explore that. And Sony isn't. Sony went out this past week with a number of quotes saying, essentially, Game Pass isn't sustainable. We don't believe in AAA development going free, obviously, on a subscription basis. On day one, we're going to go a different direction. Microsoft is going a completely different direction to Sony. And honestly, as a guy that loves the video game industry, that loves mergers and acquisitions and loves business economics, this is a fascinating time to be watching this industry. This is two juggernauts going after each other's markets with completely different business models. This hasn't been done in video games, and this is going to be a wonderful generation to follow these kinds of questions, especially with the big gorilla in the room throwing out billions of dollars whenever they feel like it. Now we've got some quotes. Gaming is the most expansive category in the entertainment industry as people everywhere turn to gaming to connect, socialize, and play with their friends. This is from the Microsoft CEO. Quality differentiated content is the engine behind the growth and value of Xbox Game Pass from Minecraft to Flight Simulator. As a proven game developer and publisher, note that term, we'll see it again, Bethesda has seen success across every category of games, and together, we will further our ambition to empower the more than 3 billion gamers worldwide. Then we've got Phil. This is an awesome time to be an Xbox fan. In the last 10 days alone, we've released details on our two new consoles, which go on pre-order tomorrow, launched cloud gaming and Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, and now we're making another investment in the most critical part of our strategy, the games, what I tend to refer to as the content. Generations of gamers have been captivated by the renowned franchises in the Bethesda portfolio and will continue to be so for years to come as part of Xbox. Now, one interesting thing to note about that quote is if you remember when the Xbox Series X and Series S notes leaked, one of the things that Phil Spencer said was, oh, this was supposed to be a press conference sometime next week, but what are you going to do? That lines up with this notion of pre-orders going live for the Xbox tomorrow. This announcement today from Bethesda, and one wonders whether they weren't trying to set up the timing for this agreement to match the launch of the Xbox. Here's the Series X, here's the price, here's the release date. Oh, and by the way, Game Pass and Xbox is now going to own Bethesda, ZeniMax, Arcane, id, everything else that you like. And wouldn't that have been a mic drop moment for Microsoft? And you can see that it absolutely would have been. It's a mic drop moment right now, here today. But if you combined all those, I think that's likely what they were aiming for. And again, these kinds of agreements 
don't just materialize. $7.5 billion for a company that's private, hasn't been sold, hasn't gone through this process before, is months, if not years of work. You can decide on the top line number, $7.5 billion in a handshake and a phone call, if you did that, but actually getting through the due diligence process, negotiating the terms of the agreement, what's going to happen to the intellectual property and various things like existing limiting contracts. Again, we'll get to death loop in just a second. And you have to actually go through that for months. So you would have aimed at a specific date to really get it done. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if that date was designed to line up with the actual announcement of all the details for the Xbox series of products. This is a thrilling day for this company, our employees and our fans, said the CEO of ZeniMax. We have enjoyed a close partnership with Microsoft for decades, and this deal is a natural progression of those years working together. The big winners today are our fans. We are continuing to develop our slate of AAA games, but now with Microsoft's scale and entire game stack, our games can only get better. Again, the pitch here has to be, if you are a fan of our products, this is a good thing. And Microsoft has to establish that we can put all these resources behind them. They would love to be able to point to a few more victories with their current in-house studios, but they really haven't had enough time to put things out just with Microsoft resources. So even things like the Outer Worlds don't have the Microsoft kind of touch placed upon them. Maybe Wasteland 3, they could start to pitch that as look at what we can do with our resources. But as of right now, they have to try to thread this needle of we are going to help you if you love Wolfenstein and you shouldn't feel like you aren't going to get the opportunity to play it on PlayStation, maybe because it'll be so much better in the way that it appears on Xbox or maybe because we wind up publishing it over there. The transaction is subject to customary closing conditions. As we've talked about in the past, you have reps and warranties and, and covenants and fiduciary obligations that have to come down through the final closing. And you also have as part of those conditions, what they call regulatory review. Now we've actually talked about this pretty briefly in this space, but I thought $7.5 billion was a good time to actually bring this up and to talk to you all about it. So I brought up the Federal Trade Commission site here, merger review, how mergers are reviewed. And you might say, Rick, if somebody spends $7.5 billion on something, it's not a merger, is it? And I would say, yes, thank you, Voice. It is not a merger. It's actually an acquisition. But even though this is covered in merger review, acquisitions are reviewed in the same way. Among the key provisions in U.S. antitrust law is one designed to prevent anti-competitive mergers or acquisitions. Under the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act, the FTC and the Department of Justice review most of the proposed transactions that affect commerce in the United States and are over a certain size. And either agency can take legal action to block deals that it believes would substantially lessen competition. Although there are some exceptions, for the most part, current law requires companies to report any deal that is valued at more than $94 million. This is a little bit more than that. To the agencies so they can be reviewed. So overall, anytime you've got a big deal, and Hoag Law has had deals that trigger this. It used to be $50 million, $94 million, as said by the Federal Trade Commission right now. And you have to go and you have to say, all right, one of the conditions to closing is that the window ends, and we'll talk about that in just a second, or we get approval of this thing from the relevant government body because we can't do it until that happens. So we can sign up to agree to it, but we have these closing conditions, one of which is regulatory review. After the companies report a proposed deal, the agencies will do a preliminary review to determine whether it raises any antitrust concerns that warrant closer exam examination. Based on what they find, they can either terminate the waiting period and let them go, they can let the waiting period expire, 30 days, 
Or they may extend the review and ask the parties to turn over more information. This is when we escalate and you actually have to go through a formal review at the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Justice. The vast majority of deals reviewed by the FTC and the Department of Justice are allowed to proceed after the first preliminary review. For the most part, this isn't designed to stop up transactions. Certainly not those at the $100 million level, but we're not talking about a $100 million transaction. We're talking about a publisher and a software provider that had been throughout its history, multi-platform, supporting multiple platforms in this environment. And you might say to yourself, well, it's just one, it's just Bethesda. Yes, it's $7.5 billion. And I tend to agree. I think this will be allowed. I think Microsoft will be allowed to consummate this purchase. But the Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission could look at this and say, well, if this were to limit the products that are available on the Sony PlayStation and on the Nintendo Switch, you spent $7.5 billion to make these products exclusive to your storefront. Is that not a reduction in competition at some level? And I think that they might have a point if it were a significant portion of the market. If you look at this and you say, well, let's just imagine that Microsoft had spent $100 billion and bought up Electronic Arts and Activision and Bungie and Bethesda and everything else all in one fell swoop, then I think the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice would look at that and say, well, you're just trying to kill these other markets with your money. And so we might take issue with that. Now, as you probably know, if you're in virtual legality and you've seen us cover the Epic versus Apple saga, and in fact, that was the video that we had prepped to do today and which will probably be done tomorrow, is that antitrust law in general is a very subjective kind of concept. So the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice are always evaluating these things and putting upon them their understanding of the market, what'll hurt the market, elasticity of demand, all these other good things that economists always talk about and that the FTC and the Department of Justice employ. And in general, you don't know whether something is going to cause trouble for any given department on these questions. You can kind of take as an overall assumption that the current administration, the current FTC and Department of Justice is being pretty lenient about these kinds of things, letting more deals go through. And other administrations, perhaps a Biden administration, if he gets elected uh, at the end of this year, might take a more uh, stringent approach on these kinds of things and at bare minimum make these kinds of deals go through a secondary review. We don't know that, but one of the things that is happening in this transaction is that it is significant. It does play upon this huge, huge market, as they say in their own press release, uh, $200 billion in annual revenue in 2021, and they are taking a portion of it and limiting their competitors' access to it. Maybe. If they aren't, for instance, that's one of the things that you could tell regulators. You can tell them, hey, you know, we're still going to publish over there. We're just going to put it over on our Game Pass and sell it for full price over on Sony or Nintendo Switch or anywhere else. And that would be the kind of thing that would assuage those fears if it came to it. Now we get a few statements from the folks over at Bethesda. Todd Howard on joining Xbox. I've had the joy of doing it with some of the most talented, humble, and passionate people there are, being in the world of video games. But our longest and closest partner during my career has been Microsoft. Today, we join them, and I want to share some personal thoughts on what it means and our shared vision. One, Bethesda became part of a brand new startup, ZeniMax Media, and Microsoft started development of their first video game console, the Xbox, in 1999. So one of the things that's always interesting about these acquisitions is a lot of people can tell these stories is that it is still relationships at the end of the day, even for $7.5 billion, it's relationships that get these things done. Yes, Microsoft can cold call whoever they want. And if the number is high enough, then that company will probably sell to them. But 
outside of that blow you away, you have no choice but to sell kind of number, it's these relationships that really come into play, that really start to set the stage for what's going to work, who's willing to spend the money, and what number we're willing to sell the company for. Microsoft and their new Xbox crew had a view that I came to share completely. Shouldn't we allow anyone to have this experience, talking about Morrowind now back in the day, why does it matter where the screen is or what the controller is? There are many people without the same access and we can bring it to them. Morrowind would go on to become one of the best-selling Xbox games of all time. Microsoft quickly let us in on their new system, the Xbox 360. More than a PC port, our aim with our next game, Oblivion, was to usher in the next generation of gaming. And if you were gaming around that time, you know that the Oblivion screenshots, the Oblivion articles, really were used to sell next generation. And not just with the Xbox 360, of course, but they did sell that next generation in an important way. So you hear this kind of reflected upon on the Bethesda side of things, and it does match up with really the history of everything that has happened. With each new console cycle, we evolved together. It's led to our largest engine overhaul since Oblivion, with all new technologies powering our first new IP in 25 years, Starfield, as well as the Elder Scrolls VI. Like our original partnership, this one is about more than one system or one screen. We share a deep belief in the fundamental power of games in their ability to connect, empower, and bring joy. And a belief we should bring that to everyone, regardless of who you are, where you live, or what you play on. Which is interesting, right? Now, all of the background of this statement is related to PC. That you shouldn't just be limiting Morrowind to PC. It should also be available on Xbox. That still plays if everything that Bethesda releases is exclusive solely to the Microsoft ecosystem. But it does leave that question mark. You've got a large transaction. You've got regulators that might be interested in looking into it. You've got references to these games going on Game Pass. You don't have discussions of exclusivity. And you have all of this language talking about what you play on, that more gamers should be able to play things everywhere. And yes, Game Pass accomplishes that to some extent by lowering the barriers to entry into gaming, but also Bethesda has been supporting the Sony infrastructure, has been supporting Nintendo for a while. If those are just going away, this is an interesting thing to message. So it does raise that question to somebody like me. He finally ends with an anecdote that I liked, so I just thought I would highlight it for you. When I received the Lifetime Achievement Award at GDC, I joked in my acceptance, I wonder how many achievement points that one is worth. At the end of the ceremony, some good friends from Microsoft congratulated me and said they'd find out. A few months later, I was given a code to a game they had created, named after me, and locked to my account. When ran, it unlocks a single achievement, Lifetime 1,000 points. It still sits in my list when I check, and I smile every time. Now, that's relationships. That's relationship building. Those relationships can be entirely genuine, by the way. I don't mean to suggest that they were just using things like lifetime 1,000 points to ultimately one day spend $7.5 billion to acquire the company. But it is the kind of thing that big companies, that good companies that are managing their relationships do day in and day out. So this anecdote I thought was interesting to have brought up in this press release kind of concept because it does suggest that Todd Howard really did feel a certain amount of closeness to Microsoft. Now note, that closeness is basically mandatory as of today. You wouldn't have a statement like this that didn't have some semblance of this kind of notion. It wasn't up to him to sell. And it is important to all parties that this looks like an amenable transaction in which everybody is thrilled about the possibilities, including Pete Hines, their head of public relations and marketing. When I started, Bethesda was not much more than a handful of people. 
Today, it changed again. And I know that brings up questions. But the key point is we're still Bethesda. We're still working on the same games we were yesterday, made by the same studios we've worked with for years. And those games will be published by us. So Bethesda is going to retain some kind of publishing capability that we didn't see talked about really in the press release. Microsoft will still, of course, own them so they can still direct the publishing that Bethesda and ZeniMax do. But the notion here is that there will be some semblance of independence. And that makes sense because they've been independent. They've operated that way. Microsoft isn't just purchasing them to strip them for parts. This isn't a private equity deal. This is what we call a strategic transaction where Microsoft believes there are synergies to be realized by making this purchase. Those synergies, of course, being that they need content for Game Pass and eight new studios is going to help them make it. Now, those eight new studios are already organized, so Microsoft will be silly to just break it down completely. But will they be published by us Does that mean, once again, these kinds of hints, these notions that maybe what Microsoft bought was Game Pass content and they still intend to recoup their investment by selling the games at full price on PlayStation? Because what could make your Game Pass look better than selling something like the Elder Scrolls 6 over on PlayStation for $70 or come on over to Xbox and just buy it, uh, buy a Game Pass and play it right now without that investment? I do think the economics could work for them, but there will undoubtedly be accountants and bean counters and all sorts of financial folks really looking at these questions very hard, maybe running some experiments, some A-B tests on how these products are put in these various environments. And it will be very, very interesting to watch. So why the change, according to Pete Hines? Because it allows us to make even better games going forward. Microsoft is an incredible partner and offers access to resources that will make us a better publisher and developer. We believe that means better games for you to play. We believe that change is an important part of getting better. We believe in pushing ourselves to be better, to innovate, and to grow. That's all well and good. I have no problem with the notions expressed by this sentence. Again, they are trying to establish that Microsoft and its resources and its infrastructure will result in goodness. But one of the things that I would say just from the real politic kind of take on this is that this company was sold because the price was right and the owners were willing to sell. Microsoft bought it for all these various strategic reasons. From the sales side, they didn't have a choice. The owners sold it and this is what has resulted. They want to pitch now that it's going to make a better environment. I very much hope so. In fact, I think Microsoft being dedicated to gaming in this space at bare minimum provides Sony with a competition source that they need, that Microsoft needs to be that big gorilla in the room because Sony and especially arrogant Sony from the PlayStation 3 era is a bad thing for gamers everywhere. And so Microsoft, a big bad Microsoft that is fighting Sony tooth and nail, spending billions of dollars to get it done is better for gamers. But I don't know whether or not it's better for Bethesda gamers. And that will be interesting to follow. You also see reference made by Pete Hines to that whole moral wind setup. Now, that was either decided by public relations people slash lawyers on the Microsoft and Bethesda side collectively that they would bring this up to help establish why this happened, or Pete Hines and Todd Howard had this kind of thought about the beginnings of the history with Microsoft at roughly the same time. Either way, it presents a good anecdote, and it does present this notion that they've had a relationship for a long time, and that's one of the reasons why this deal is getting done. He finishes with the following. And soon the conversation will move on from this deal to talking about our games again. It's very funny. If you actually read these whole sentences in this paragraph, the head of public relations and marketing really desperately wants to talk about games, isn't used to talking about 
public transactions, acquisitions of this type, doesn't want to talk about them, has to watch his words very carefully in these kinds of settings, and would really love to talk about games. And I can get back to answering the questions that get us all excited. Tell me more about Deathloop. When can I see more Ghostwire? When the hell will you tell me about Starfield? Now, Deathloop and Ghostwire are super, super interesting. Because if you've been following along at home, you know that those two games in particular, well, they are timed exclusives for the Sony PlayStation 5. Bethesda had entered into agreements for some amount of compensation to make it so that those two games were available only on the PlayStation 5 for a period of time. Usually, historically, that's been a year, but we will see. And those two games are going to continue to be exclusive to PlayStation. I pulled up a Eurogamer article. According to Bloomberg, which is paywalled, apologies for that, the established PS5 timed exclusivity for Deathloop and Ghostwire Tokyo will not be changed by today's acquisition. Yes, that means Microsoft will technically be publishing two PlayStation 5 timed exclusives. Beyond these, the rest of Bethesda's upcoming games, such as the next Elder Scrolls, will launch on Xbox and PC and other consoles on a case-by-case basis. The outlet was told by Xbox boss Phil Spencer. So that hasn't been decided yet, but the door hasn't been closed. And one of the really interesting things, as you can tell from watching this video, that I find about the Microsoft strategy is that if they can make enough money from that recurring revenue source, from selling software, that Game Pass access, then in a lot of ways, making the Xbox ecosystem exclusive, a walled garden, doesn't make that much sense. Certainly doesn't make as much sense to someone like Nintendo or Sony on the PlayStation side of things. And so when you get a quote like this, one that I would ordinarily dispel and say, oh yeah, likely not. If Sony had made this purchase, there was no way realistically that it was coming to Microsoft. It might come to the Switch. And Microsoft could be saying the same thing because the Switch I think is viewed in the marketplace as everybody's second console. It's one of the reasons why they don't care about moving Ori to the Switch, but you won't see Ori on the PlayStation. Here though, you could be looking at something else because $7.5 billion, as little as it is for someone with a market capitalization the size of Microsoft's, is a heck of a lot of money. And they wouldn't enter into the transaction if they didn't think they could recoup that expense somehow. Yes, content for Game Pass. Yes, that will pay itself. Yes, that's enormously difficult to track in terms of the efficacy of a transaction like this to moving people into the Game Pass environment, but also potentially selling these same games in markets that we know exist on the Sony PlayStation side. One of the things that people have talked about extensively with Microsoft moving to this model is, is this the end of generations? It might be, but it might also be the end of console exclusivity as we know it. If Microsoft actually takes control of the market with this software model, then yes, Sony is likely to match them later. You might've heard quotes that said, Sony doesn't believe in Game Pass, et cetera, et cetera. But if Game Pass proves to be something that is profitable, Sony will adopt their own. Make no mistake about that. And if that does happen, we might see the end of exclusive set-top boxes playing exclusive games almost in their entirety. There might still be one or two that only work with specific features of a given box. But if this kind of thing plays out, and if Microsoft does sell Elder Scrolls 6 to the Sony fan base, when they know that that fan base does exist over there, but they can justify it because they're making money through Game Pass, well, then that's a whole new ball of wax. A ball of wax that could potentially see the Microsofts of the world justifying purchases of anybody. Electronic Arts, Activision, $60 billion, $36 billion. And yes, even Bungie, which isn't going to be at those numbers. I think the number I threw out as a ridiculous number was $40 billion in the video I did here. But, you know, maybe a billion 
for Bungie. Who knows? How bad does Microsoft want it? How bad do they need it? And at the end of the day, what does the future look like? Well, I will tell you this, Microsoft fans. Xbox is all in. They're all in for gaming, regardless of how many boxes PlayStation sells. And that is a good thing, even if you're a diehard Sony fan. Because better competition means better products, and that's better for PlayStation, better for Microsoft, better for Switch, and better for all of us. This is a heck of a day, and thank you for joining me to talk about it here in Virtual Legality. I talk about these kinds of things all the time, the business and law of pop culture, video games, movies, music, television, everything else that you can think of that you're already interested in, that you're already reading about in this space. Please like, subscribe, share, tell folks that we are here. We're selling shirts on the store now. We're doing all sorts of really wild and interesting things that, hey, I can't say a lot of law firms in the United States, at least, are doing. So please do check out all of that stuff. And if you caught it on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.